This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And on this episode of SVU, Matt and I will review the new Netflix original movie, The Little Prince, which, contrary to my initial assumptions, is not actually about Matt Singer. Unfortunately. Of course, we will also give you some recommendations of other movies you can rent or stream at home right now. In honor of The Little Prince, which is partially stop-motion animated, we thought we'd really set the mood and record the podcast one twenty-fourth of a second at a time, incrementally changing our postures and facial features. Now, we knew it was a podcast, but we felt like listeners would be able to feel, if not see, the effort. Unfortunately, after recording around the clock for the past week and a half, we were only able to record approximately three minutes and 14 seconds of the one hour and 15 minutes of a typical Film Spotting FVU episode. So we did scrap that plan and instead we'll just recommend some other stop motion animated movies that are currently available at home. Before we do that, though, let's do opening break, the segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few new films that are new on demand. Allison, you're up this time. What have you got for us? Well, first up, uh, it's going to be on demand on August 16th. So by the time this, po- this episode is live, it should be on demand. One of my favorite debuts from last year, Cresha. And Cresha, written and directed by Trey Edward Schultz, only in his 20s. And it's quite a first feature, uh, starring Cresha Fairchild as Cresha. Cresha Fairchild is his aunt. Most of the cast is uh, made up of his family members. The movie was shot over nine days in his parents' house in Texas. And it is a Thanksgiving movie of the nightmarish sort. But I think what this movie does so well, beyond... I, I just like creating the most claustrophobic sense of a suburban house maybe ever is that it puts you inside the head of its main char- character who is a woman who is returning home after 10 years where you slowly get a sense of her addiction and her kind of uh, flakiness and her kind of difficulties that she's, she's been trying to get her life in order and to reunite with her family members, to reunite with her son and uh, it really gives you this subjective sense of someone who is trying so hard to hold it together that she essentially kicks off her own downward spiral. It's, it's really well made. And, and so much of that subjectivity comes through in the filmmaking. Like I said, it was shot you know, with a very low budget over very little time and gets a lot done in that space. So I, I'm really excited to see what Trey Edward Schultz does next. But I think that this one is is worth looking up. It stands on its own. It's not just a promising first feature. I think it is a very solid movie unto itself. So that is Krisha, and it is now available on demand. Also now available on demand is Richard Linklater, Dream is Destiny. This is obviously a movie about Richard Linklater. It is one of those documentaries about a filmmaker, though this one has the benefit of uh, being directed and produced by Louis Black, 
who is one of the founders of South by Southwest, the Austin Chronicle, and Austin, Austin Stalwart, who, you know, really should know his Richard Linklater, and I think knows Richard Linklater very well, and the Austin film scene that he's really central to. So I, I think that there's something to that, to that personal touch that, you know, isn't, sets us aside and makes it not just a work of fandom. And Linklater continuing to be a very singular, very enjoyable, very impressive filmmaker. Uh, it's definitely worth a look. And finally, now available on demand, a movie that I've been looking forward to catching up with. It is called Disorder, originally released under the name Maryland. It is this French-Belgian film directed by Alice Winocor, and it's, uh, it stars Matthias Schoenarts, everyone's favorite kind of beefy male lead, <laughs> Euro male lead, uh, as an ex-soldier who has PTSD and is working private security, and he is hired to take care of Diane Kruger. And it, it played at Cannes. Uh, it got a lot of good notices, but also was the kind of film that I think is easy to overlook and I did not get around to seeing it. I heard, I heard quite a few good things about it, though. And I do like a good bodyguard drama. So that is Disorder, and it is now available on demand. I've designed a plan. I call it your life plan. Life plan? Everything's here. The minute of the hour, hour of the day, the day of the week, the week of the month, the month of the year, the gear of your life. Everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ah. Once, when I was six years old, I believed something very simple. That what is most important is invisible to the eye. This is our, our main review on every episode of Film Spotting SVU is chosen by you, the listeners, in our Listener's Choice poll. On SVU number 117, we gave you these options. The Little Prince, the new Netflix animated movie. Mr. Holmes, starring Ian McKellen as an aging Sherlock Holmes. And right now, Wrong Then, the latest film from director Hong Sang-soo. And that was the way the poll came out. 40% to 36% to 23% in favor of The Little Prince. It was directed by Mark R. Osborne, who co-directed the first Kung Fu Panda, which I would not have guessed based on the the content of this movie, and he also worked for years on SpongeBob SquarePants. The film is adapted from a famous novella by – I don't know the, the author, and I don't speak French. Do you want to help me and sure. not butcher his name? Uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. That's good because I definitely wouldn't have said it that way, which tells the story of a pilot who crashes his plane in the Sahara where he meets a mysterious young boy. In the film version, the story of The Little Prince is told by an old man voiced by Jeff Bridges to a young girl who's voiced by Mackenzie Foy. The girl's mother, voiced by Rachel McAdams, is a, I guess, workaholic mom who demands academic perfection from her daughter and forces her to adopt a frankly insane summer studying schedule in the hopes that she will get into this elite private school. But the girl keeps skipping her studies to spend time with the old man, an old aviator, and hear more about his time with the little prince. This film premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 2015 and was received mostly positively. And in France, it went on to become the most successful foreign animated feature in history. And it also won the César Award for the best animated feature of the year. But The Little Prince's initial American release by Paramount Pictures 
it didn't go quite that well. Actually, it was completely scrapped, and Paramount instead sold the movie to Netflix, where it premiered a few weeks ago. So let's start there, Allison. Did Paramount drop the ball by dropping The Little Prince? Did they have a little masterpiece on their hands? Or were you as underwhelmed by the movie as I have to assume they were in not releasing the movie and sort of handing it off to somebody else? Yeah, I had the the kind of benefit of seeing this very early before any of that happened. I got to see it at the premiere at Cannes last year. And I was a little puzzled by the that the way that Paramount just kind of you know, without, I think, a statement as to why, just kind of dropped it and, and right. allowed Netflix to take over. But I don't think it's, it didn't particularly impress me as a film. I think that it's, it falls in this kind of awkward line of straddling, I think, the kind of kids film that grown-ups like, which I think would be represented by a lot of the stop motion mm-hmm. parts of the film, which I like a lot. Mm-hmm. And then it's surrounded by this kind of almost like candy coating of a more traditional animated film, not just in how it looks in the computer animation, but the pacing of it and the kind of, I don't know, the cartooniness of it almost. And I and that part I find not very interesting at all. And I think that there, I mean, maybe who knows what Netflix's uh, how they evaluate successes. <laughs> We've always wondered, mm-hmm. but I think that certainly from a larger theatrical release, this falls in a kind of awkward place that I can understand a studio walking away from. It can be very expensive to release a big children's movie. Um, but I don't know. What about you? Were your initial reactions? Where, where I did not. Now I didn't see it at Cannes. Was it in English at Cannes? I was trying to think of that just now, and I honestly cannot remember. remember. Because they made a French dub and uh, an English dub, and I think they were both given essentially like equal precedence. Okay. You know, so I, and I don't remember. (laughs) I'm, 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 I'm curious about that just because I wonder, I always wonder about, you know, these sorts of things, whether this is like a, I mean, it's a, it's an American director. So it's, it's not like it's a French film that has been sort of, has a, American cast glommed onto it, but I, I was just kind of cu- I was curious about that. But the fact that you don't even remember, I think, speaks volumes to the quality of this movie, which I did not like at all. I was frankly very disappointed by it. We're, we're pretty much in agreement. I thought the stop motion animation was gorgeous, and those sequences were really great. The problem is that's what maybe twenty, thirty minutes max at in a most. movie that runs an hour and forty minutes. And frankly, I was absolutely bored by the wraparound story. It felt to me like Bargain Basement Up, like someone saw Up and was like, boy, that worked really well. Let's basically rip that off and put it onto this story. I guess because it's a novella and there's not quite enough meat on the bone to stretch that to feature length. So they stumbled on this idea of kind of preserving the original vision of – or at least the original story to some extent and kind of extending it this other way, which I guess is sort of a creative way – in theory of taking something and being faithful to it while also expanding it and blowing it out to feature length. But I thought the, the, the CGI stuff in this movie was frankly dreadful. And by the end of the movie, I was just actively hoping it would end. I, oh, the because ending the, is, is, is terrible. It's terrible. Say. And that's, and the other thing is like by 45, 50 minutes in the three, the stop motion animation stops. And so all you have is not only the CGI, but it also, it loses the, Two of the three most interesting and important characters in the CGI part, they vanish in that second half. It just becomes about the little girl and this 
frankly dumb, pointless adventure she has. I don't know if you could tell. I didn't like this movie. And and uh, and I was just – I completely – I almost zoned out completely the last half of this movie. I was – my mind wandered. I was totally bored, and I was relieved when it ended. So have you read The Little Prince? Are you familiar with it at all? If I did as a kid, I don't remember it now, and yeah. I certainly haven't revisited it at any point. Yeah. I, I mean I know it fairly well because it is taught – uh, if you take high school French, which I did not it's take, like, it's a very, it's a fairly like simply written Simple story, book. Yeah. So it's, uh, I think, a text that a lot of people are are is it brought a, to read. Is it a picture book? It's it has illustrations. I okay. feel like calling it a picture book. I don't know. It, it kind of overstates the percentage of illustrations right. to text, but it is like a very simply. It's like a fable, you know. Yeah, and I think that that there is something. I don't know. Uh, you know, as you said, this is a very short, simple story. And we have seen other people, uh, including like the BFG, kind of flounder with a very yeah. short, with like kind of short source material to fill out a whole movie. Mm-hmm. So I can understand the need to do something beyond what are, it was like a fairly short text. But I think that what this movie does approaches like blasphemy just in terms of how it how it treats this, this delicate this, sensitive right, this delicate fable. and kind of mysterious yes fable. very strange you know it, it basically poetic to, to to paraphrase uh you know some a, a certain screenwriter who i will not name but who who use this it is almost it's mary sue fan fiction mm. in its approach to this in that uh she not only meets the author of the book she finds the little prince right. as a as a grown as up as a grown up played know, voiced and, by Paul and Rudd saves him yes. and you know reintroduces him to the wonder of childhood and etc yeah. and i think that there that i mean the ending i think is very dire but i think it also it puts a very kind of ham ham-handed reading on this very delicate fable mm-hmm. and i think that you know, when uh, Saint-Exupéry was writing this, like, World War II was happening, and a lot of his ideas about, like, the innocence and about the the kind of how foolish uh, grown-up behaviors can look is also being fed, like, through this incredibly dark, you know, global experience. And I think to turn it into this, like... Madcap Right, and also just, like... Adults work so hard, and Rawr, you know, children. Yeah. They are destroy the only ones. children. Yeah. The children are the only ones who like have a sense of wonder, and like you can't forget that growing up. I think is like it's so pandering. You yeah. know, it's it's kind of it's such a weird message. So, I, do you feel that this is a movie that is worried that its own source material is boring? I would say yes. I would say yes. Based on how different the non-source material sequences are from the source material sequences, which are kind of – they maintain that sort of mystery and beauty and you know, and strangeness. And then the CGI sequences are like madcap and lots of chases and the ship flying and uh, you know, the houses getting kind of ruined and all that sort of – and goofy Jeff Bridges, kooky old man humor. It just seems uh, – pandering is a good word. I think that those sequences very much felt like pandering to a child audience that they don't think will pay attention or be inter- that all that interested in the, the actual little prince and trying to kind of like, don't worry. This part is weird looking and kind of strange, but in a few minutes, the little girl will fly in the airplane again, that sort of thing. It almost becomes this – treaties about what has happened to animation Mm. but also like about children's entertainment Mm -hmm. you know the 
there is something I don't like. There is something kind of like generically big, big kids animated movie about the framing story and all yeah. of that. That it's as you like, it's filled with uh, especially the end. It's filled with like flying a plane through this like through the space, yes, visiting through, asteroids, but, and like uh, stopping an evil businessman and all of that. And it's <laughs> yeah. it's like a Toy Story ish almost. There's something to it, like yeah. in the, like the trash. Like, it definitely has a lot of like we've watched every Pixar movie and tried to kind of lift a lot of their messages and and like squeeze them all into one movie. Yeah, I mean, I think that watching this, it makes you also appreciate pixar as always oh my god so much as always but i think that it watching it it also made me think about how difficult making a really good kids movie Mm. is you know i think like this movie does try very hard to attempt i mean i think the the little prince one of the reasons that the the original text of the little prince is so has such power is that it does seem to capture a kind of childlike point of view and this like it without seeming to have to reach so hard for it Mm -hmm. um and like and i think that the original parts of this movie the parts that uh involve the girl and the suburbs and the school and all of that tries really hard to to reach for a child's eye view of adulthood Mm -hmm. that i don't think it manages at all yeah you know i think that there is something watching this it's a good way to be reminded of how difficult getting that point of view in fiction is yeah I think that's totally fair. I know that when they started really alternating between the two sections, I was like, you know, it's almost as if they made the CGI section so boring to kind of make the Little Prince, that fantasy, seem more enticing. The problem is they almost – if that was their goal, they did too good of a job of it because they made the CGI section so boring, and that's so much of the movie. And like I said, the second half, or at least the last act, is all the CGI stuff, and and it's it stinks. And so it basically – it sort of lets you understand why this girl is so drawn to this kind of vaguely creepy old guy. Like, I almost felt like this movie could be a horror movie with very little changes. Well, it is. A lot of it is about an, uh, a latchkey kid, little girl, who's, who befriends this much older creepy man. Creepy old guy. And secretly hangs out with him while yes. her mom is not around. Yes. Okay, yeah. You Okay, so you did kind of pick up on that, too. But I just felt like... You know, when you convince me that this little girl is so drawn to this creepy old guy in his story, okay, but then let me live inside the story. Don't keep dragging me out of it to this boring – like it. Like I said, if that was their goal, they did too good of a job of it. I don't like nitpicking in general, but can I ask a, like, a very nitpicky thing? Sure. So the premise here is that the girl is supposed to be studying for – I don't know, an exam or something to get into this school. She's supposed to be learning so that she gets into this elite school. Yes. And she keeps every single day. She does not do her studying so she can hang out with the guy because he's telling her the story of the little prince. Yes. Now we see basically what seems like the entire story in the film. Yes. It takes up like 20, 30 minutes of the film. How does he stretch this story out to the entire summer? Literally, she spends every day of the summer in this guy because they even show title cards first day of the summer last day of the summer i'm sitting there going what are they doing how slowly is well, he telling this story that it stretches out the entire summer <laughs> it this drove me this this weird detail drove me crazy because they're doing all of those bits of like whimsical stuff as well like painting her her ceiling oh, and the fox the dark, they make a little toy yeah, fox and, and the dark uh stars and all of that i will say we have spent a lot of time uh crapping all over i think with very good reason 
a half of this movie. Yes. I do think the stop motion is exquisite. Like, Gorgeous. It is beautiful. Yes. It looks, and I think it captures, if you could just cut all of those parts together, you would have like a decent. Short like, film. Most, yes. Like start to. Easily could be in like a best animated short contender. Yes, absolutely. At the and Oscars. It, it's, it's, it's very beautiful and it's very. You know, I, if if you're not familiar with the story of the Little Prince, it is this kind of odd fable dealing with uh, the author crash landing in the desert, which really happened to Antoine Saint Exupéry, and uh, meeting this little prince who tells him the story about how he grew up on a tiny asteroid, mm-hmm. and he's like, where well, you can walk around it and watch the sunrise and sunset, and befriends a rose, and uh, you can go into all kinds of readings about what all of this, how all these parallels to the author's life and all of these, but. Uh, I, you know, as as something taken on face value, it's really enchanting. Mm-hmm. You know, this imagery is really enchanting, and I think it is unfortunate to watch a movie where you feel like there's almost like a loss of faith in it mm-hmm. that that somehow it's not enough. You know, that like that it's not enough for children, and I that makes me sad. It makes me sad to watch that. This is something that happens. I feel like. Often, maybe not often, but it happens sometimes where a movie has something that's really good, but it's not enough for the full movie. Or there's one element of a movie that you really like and it's surrounded by stuff you don't like. Rarely, though, is it so clear because of the different animation styles and the way they cut back and forth how much better this one thing is than the rest of the stuff around it. Like the movie – clues you it signals you okay here's the part that's really good here's the part to pay attention to and then when they cut back they're like all right you can check out again because it's going to be a few minutes or the rest of the movie before we get back to something really really lovely again this was a big disappointment i didn't really follow that much of the reaction to it i mean obviously i knew that paramount dumped it uh or at least you know sold it to netflix whatever but I, th- you know, I heard. Good- I thought I heard good things about this they movie. Were. The word at, was very at, good at out of can, and I was surprised. I mean, sometimes a festival movie opens and you're re- you're baffled by the response, good or bad. It can be a movie that gets you know neglected, and then you love it, or vice versa. This is one where I'm like, what was going on at that day? At- what was in the air that day at Cannes that it got positive reviews? Because I thought this was obviously the the the, 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 the stop motion is lovely, but that's. So it's, I don't know, a third of a lovely movie. You know, and this is the same year that Inside Out was at Cannes. It was last year. So. Enough said. Yeah, enough said. Enough said. Yeah. All right. Well, that is The Little Prince. We cannot really recommend it, but if you want to check it out, maybe fast forward just to the stop motion parts. Very easy to see. The difference is very clear. Yes. uh, It is available right now on Netflix. Say goodnight. Oh, poo. Yeah, poo on you. Poo, poo, poo. Say goodnight, Lisa. Goodnight, Michael. Poo. 
good night. Lisa? Yes? I was wondering if maybe you'd want to come to my room for a little nightcap. You sure you don't mean Emily? Everyone always likes Emily better. Uh, I'm going to the room, Lisa. I'll see you later, maybe. Have fun. Em, I came here with you. I'm not going to just abandon you. Oh, don't be an idiot, Lisa. He's gorgeous. The one good part of, of The Little Prince, as we've already made quite clear, at least to us, was the stop-motion animation. So it's, I guess it's good that we're doing stop-motion as our theme because we can really focus, focus in on that. Allison, do you consider yourself sort of a uh, stop-motion fan? When you see there is a new stop-motion film coming out, does that get you excited, intrigued? I love stop-motion. Ah. I, I feel like just the – I like animation in general, but I think the combination of, of an – animation style with also the physicality the mm-hmm. like that comes I, I mean like with something like Ardman you like to be, to be able to see like fingerprints sometimes thumbprints yeah those are the know? guys who make Wallace and Gromit yes. and they did Chicken Run they're really one of the yeah. the, the for, they're on the forefront of stop motion really right now right and then or or if you're working with puppets just the kind of intricacy the like labor that just mm-hmm. goes into having to you, making a movie I, I think there's like a warmth to stop motion that can't really be matched uh, by any other other genre, really, or medium. Yeah. We're, we're not going to recommend it because it came out so recently, but we did want to at least mention how much we both liked Anomalisa, which is a stop motion animated film from last year, which was really magnificent by Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson. Uh, definitely. I mean, one of the things that I really like about stop motion is when and I'm going to talk about this in my recommendations. But to me, one of the things that's most beautiful about it is that it doesn't feel entirely real. And I like when movies sort of, instead of trying to make it seem real, they sort of lean into it. And they kind of embrace the slightly surreal or unreal aspect of stop motion and give you something that really understands that. And and Anomalies is a perfect example, the way that, you know, that these sort of puppets the way they kind of use the 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 formal nature of this to to tell this story where everyone looks alike you know and they just used kind of a blank generic puppet for almost all the characters so that those few important characters stood out and i just thought that you know charlie kaufman yeah you don't need me to tell you he's a good filmmaker but he understood him and and duke johnson did the way to kind of exploit the the things that make stop motion special and unique and that movie did such an amazing job of that yeah and i think that there's something to stop motion as just how kind of old a form it is Mm. you know that it is a very basic form of filmmaking and just like you photograph something you move it a little you photograph something and it becomes it creates motion it's almost the magic of of all movies sort of like writ large like yes. that is how movies work is one frame at a time and stop motion like almost literalizes that in a kind of beautiful way yeah yeah all right well so for my first pick i wanted to go with a film that is from a company that's known for making stop motion it's not ardman it's another company but uh that also is one that i thought of a lot while watching uh, the little prince i think because the heroines recall each other mm. it is Coraline which is available for rent. This is the 2009 film directed by Henry Selick of The Nightmare Before Christmas and made by the studio Laika, who are known for their stop-motion work. They did Paranorman after that and The Box Trolls, and they are the behind the new Kubo and the Two Strings, yep. which I haven't gotten to see yet. We haven't seen yet, but the most of the reviews I've, I've seen so I've far are very positive. Yeah. Yep, it comes out, I think, uh, next week. 
Friday yeah. when people are listening to this. Yeah. So Coraline is, I mean, I haven't seen Kubo yet, but it, other than that is my favorite of theirs. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is both enchanting and scary in the way that unset, like uncleaned up fairy tales are scary, like genuinely spooky. It's based on a book by Neil uh, Gaiman. And uh, the one thing that I regret about it in in streaming in rental is that you can't see the innovative approach to 3D that really marked its theatrical release because it had to do with how it used stop motion as well, which is that it's t- the story takes place in two different worlds. There's the real world in which Coraline Jones, 11-year-old, voiced by Dakota Fanning, like has just moved to Oregon, is feeling a little uh, out of sorts. And it's flatter, that world, both grayer and flatter than the, the enchanting, magical world she discovers. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, I, there, there are uh, touches of inside out to the storyline as well and to this heroine. Cor- Coraline is independent. She is entertaining herself and her parents are too busy for her. They are writing, which I think is a great touch. They are on deadline working on their gardening catalog and cannot pay her attention. And one of the things that I thought about uh, that reminded me of this movie when I was watching Little, Little Prince, that I think this movie does so much better than The Little Prince, is that it captures a child's eye view of feeling frustrated with adults. You know, Coraline keeps going to talk to her parents and they're always like... They're messy. They're like, they look terrible. They don't have time for her. Her mom keeps forgetting to have go grocery shopping. They haven't unpacked yet. The house is a mess. Uh, and yet, then it gives her this magical world in which everyone has all the time in the world for her, in which she is the center of attention. And it both has empathy for that feeling of being ignored while also creating room for the fact that there is a selfishness to, or there's a childishness to wanting everything the way that's just about you and how you want it. Mm. And I think something that this movie does really well and makes like, and, and realizes beautifully, but also makes very scary is be careful what you wish for is here you go. The perfect mom, the perfect dad, the boy down the street talks too much. Now he can't talk at all. He'll just hang out with you and listen to what you say. You know, it, it turns all of those wishes into something enchanting and frightening, uh, particularly when everyone in the other world has button eyes. It's a really well done movie. I loved it when it came out in theaters and I liked it even more when I was rewatching it because I think it is, it really deftly gets into what it's like to feel like a neglected child, like a, an ignored child, and also the petulance behind that. Uh, and it, it's, it uses stop motion so well because it feels like at times it's taking place in this, uh, I don't know, like it's opening up a whole, uh, there's literally a door in the wall that opens up into this, this alternate world. And the fact that it's all done with actual sets, some very expensive sets, this was not a cheap movie to make, uh, I think creates a solidity to that other world and to the, the kind of broken apart mansion in which they're living in the real world that, uh, that make it very easy to latch onto without needing a lot of explanation. You know, this, this movie does a lot of world building very elegantly and very quickly. And introduces you to Coraline's thoughts and point of view 
so so kind of elegantly that you don't really understand that you're getting a look inside her, her head by way of this fantasy until it happens. It's a great movie. Uh, I would say if you're going to show it to a child, make sure this is not a child who will have nightmares easily. Like my niece could not watch this movie. Mm-hmm. She would be traumatized for ages. <laughs> uh, but but I feel like I would watch it with her parents. <laughs> And we would all enjoy it. So that is Coraline. It is available for rent. All right. That's a great pick. Uh, my first pick, I mean, I've sort of talked about already a little bit that for me, there's always that kind of unreality or surreality to stop motion animation. Like even when it looks beautiful, it never quite seems real to me. And that's part of the reason that I love my first pick, which is uh, called A Town Called Panic, because this movie makes no attempt to be realistic and it really embraces the sort of unreal nature of the medium. It's a Belgian film, I believe. It's based on a TV series of the same name, which I have never seen. I don't even know how similar or different it is from the movie. It doesn't matter at all. You can watch the movie without ever having seen the TV show. About the misadventures of this little cowboy and this little Indian and their horse, who is not really a horse. It's really just a a person that's sort of shaped like a horse and has a horse kind of personality, but, you know, it sleeps in a bed. It takes showers. It's, you know, it's sort of straddles the horse human line, I suppose. Uh, Stop motion, to me, when I thought about it, when I, you know, looked at this movie again, it's kind of like the adult high-tech version of a child playing with their toys. You make them move, you give them dialogue, you breathe life into these inanimate objects. And A Town Called Panic is per- maybe the most overt example of that that's ever been made. The The characters are these little figurines a child might play with. Like, you might play cowboys and Indians with them, or you might play house with your cowboys and Indians, essentially. Their feet are attached to these little bases, and so they they get into this goofy childish trouble – like they want to buy 50 bricks to build a barbecue pick to give the horse for the horse's birthday, and they accidentally buy like 50 million bricks, and then they have to find a place to put them all. And it just feels like a child's imaginative playtime kind of came to life on screen. The voices are just wonderful. They're in French, but they're so expressive that you almost don't need the subtitles to follow what's going on or even to laugh you know, I really liked this film a lot when it came out, and I rewatched a bunch of it today, and I found it just as charming and funny as I did six years ago. And in fact, my daughter came in the room at one point. I mean, she didn't walk in. She was carried into the room and sat down and was watching it. And she, I mean, she's barely watched television. We really don't let her watch anything yet. But she was watching this, and without understanding the language, without knowing anything that was going on, she started watching and kind of giggling and smiling like this was fantastic, even though she had, it was, you know, even though it was completely unintelligible to her, it was totally intelligible to her, which I just thought was really magical and a pretty good endorsement. If a seventh month old baby likes it and doesn't even know what it is, it must be pretty good, but it's good for grownups too, uh, provided you maintain a certain level of kind of childish immaturity. And I say that. As a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, Having learned that from The Little Prince, I think that was one of the key lessons that I learned (laughs) from that film. If you haven't seen this one, it's a real kind of delightful little weird gem. And it's called A Town Called Panic. And it is available right now on Amazon Prime. 
That's a great movie. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It has some of the best uh, playtime logic, mm-hmm. I think, imaginable. Yes. When you figure out, when you try and trace what happens in it <laughs> over, like, not a very long runtime. No, it's only a, about 80 yeah, minutes. A lot happens. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's full of incident. Yes. So my next film is, uh, it's also short, though I wouldn't say that it's filled with joy and brightness. It is The Pied Piper of Hamlin, which is now streaming on Fandor. And it's a 1986 film directed by Yuri Barta, who's a Czech filmmaker, uh, a little less well-known than Jan Svankmeyer, who's also Czech, but I think is one of the people who has helped give stop motion the kind of Eastern European slant that it can have. It, it could um, have this feel. Uh, you know, even the brothers Quay, who are from Pennsylvania, somehow have managed to make themselves seem like they are from some poorly defined your Eastern European country, uh, and who also do stop motion. So uh, Yuri Barta did a lot of um, shorter films, and then this was the longer one that he did, uh, and then wasn't able to make another film again for years and years and years. But this one is really something. It is a horrific nightmare of a fairy tale movie. Um, it tells the story of you know the Pied Piper of Hanlon, except in this case, it's got a real... Um, Someday a real rain will come and wash all the scum off the streets <laughs> edge to it that I don't really recall mm-hmm. uh, in the, the version of the story that I know. It is set in a, a kind of medieval looking village um, that uh, is all done in this expressionist style. It's on a lot of the puppets are carved out of wood and are these warped people. All of the people in the village uh, are greedy, are, uh, are obsessed with money. They eat glutton. They eat like the terrible and horrendous amounts. It's, um, and they've, they've kind of are so wasteful and so kind of immoral that they've essentially summoned a horde of rats who have been taking advantage of it. And one of the things that this movie does uh, like so strikingly well is that while all of the people are very abstract looking, um, these wooden puppets who, at times look more and more kind of deformed. The rats are realistic looking and sometimes are real. There's real footage of rats included in it, which creates this very weird divide. Um, but the whole film takes place in a fictional or fictional language that uh, is not supposed to be intelligible. You don't need to, you can just follow along in the broad strokes, but basically what happens is having, having, fallen apart this town and having this huge rat problem where the rats are eating the food and stealing money the pied piper comes to town and they offer to pay him a thousand whatever their currency is a thousand coins and he plays plays his pipe and the rats all follow him and fall off a cliff and then they refuse to pay and also in the meantime his one person like personal connection in the town this beautiful innocent woman is uh is raped and murdered. There is, this is a... Okay. Yep, this is a film with uh, implied puppet rape and murder. Uh, And then he basically uh, takes his revenge on the town. It it certainly has a heavy heavy moral implication, but also, it, it, yeah, it feels like like a set of woodprints almost or something. It is so spooky. It is the kind of thing that I would imagine... 
uh, catching either like catching on TV or in a museum as a kid, and you would you would for years later try and figure out what it is because as soon as you see it, you, it just lodges in your mind. But it, there's a real beauty to its extreme analog qualities um, and to its intricacy. It's a really I just kind of singular type of work that I, I, I think if you have Fandor, there's a lot of kind of like great stuff nestled in Fandor, but I think this is one particular find that is it's worth signing up for a trial for Fandor for. It's it's a pretty neat film to be able to see. Uh, it is the Pied Piper of Hamlin, and as I said, it's available on Fandor. Wow. Well, I haven't seen that one, but uh, you gave a good sales pitch, Allison. I'm <laughs> I'm uh, I'm sold. Slightly horrified, but sold. Yeah, you know, maybe not one for the kids. Yeah. Uh, for my second pick, I think technically I broke the rules because I have a movie that is not a stop-motion animated movie, and that is because when I hear the phrase stop-motion animation, the first thing that comes to mind aren't really animated movies. It's old like sci-fi movies where the special effects were made with stop-motion, and specifically the ones that were pioneered really by Ray Harryhausen, who is like the the guru, the genius, the titan of stop-motion animation and effects in these old movies. He's the guy who made all the effects in Jason and the Argonauts and Clash and the Titans and many others. And for my second pick, I decided to pick one, uh, Ray Harryhausen, that I had never seen before. So I went with 1957's 20 Million Miles to Earth, which is not directed by Harryhausen. It's directed by Nathan H. Duran, and that is currently available for Rent. And the film has a very familiar and honestly not that exciting storyline about an American spaceship that crashes back to Earth in the waters off of Sicily after a visit to Venus. And all but one of the crew members die on the trip back to Earth. And this sample of Venus life that they have taken back to Earth with them, it gets lost in the crash. It's this egg, the egg hatches, and then this little green monster is born from that egg, and that is where Ray Harryhausen contributes to the movie, because this thing is born as a tiny little critter, and then it very quickly grows to giant size, and so Harryhausen gets to flex his creative muscles in all kinds of different ways. He gets to make the little guy and have fun with that perspective, and then, of course, have the giant monster that's running through Rome in a sequence that I— absolutely loved especially having gone to rome last summer on vacation getting to see this monster literally like rampage through the actual uh coliseum now obviously the effects the the parts with the monster were not there but they actually have the actors running through the real coliseum which is very strange and <laughs> surreal i cannot believe they let them shoot this movie in the actual coliseum it's just fantastic from a plot standpoint, I'm you know I'm not going to go out on a limb and say this is some kind of masterpiece. Twenty million miles to Earth. It's a, it's a pure monster movie formula, and I honestly don't know if I've ever seen a movie with so many bad fake accents. It's 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 all set in Italy, and so you have a lot of guys that talking like this. I don't know why they didn't hire more Italian actors, but they did, and everyone's talking like this. Allison, oh the monster, the egg, what did it do? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's it's kind of silly and goofy. But the monster itself, which I don't think they ever name on screen, but according to what I read online, is known as Ymir or Emir, is oh, it's it's classic Harryhausen. It's beautiful. It's scary. It's sad, and it's so much fun to watch. The end of the movie that I already mentioned with him in the Colosseum and the ruins of Rome, it's amazing. And again, you know that stop motion. It's sort of famous for that kind of herky jerky quality. 
and a lot of times that's part of the appeal. But what's kind of amazing in this movie, I thought, was that this monster moves so smoothly. I don't know what it was that Harry – his little secret sauce that Harry hasn't had. But a lot of the shots are still impressive. Like this movie is over 60 years old, and it looks great. Like there are scenes where the humans are hitting it. It's human-sized, and they're beating it, and it looks completely real. And there are scenes where they're using flamethrowers on it and shooting rockets at it. And not every shot is perfect, but it's way better than I would have expected. It looks great. It holds up great. The one note I would make is I rented this on Amazon, and I guess a couple of years ago when Harryhausen was alive, they he always wanted to have made this movie in color, um, but they couldn't afford it at the time, so they shot it in black and white. And he, I guess, contributed to, supervised, worked on a colorized version of the movie for the Blu-ray. The Blu-ray has both the color and the black and white, I believe, but the version I rented on Amazon, and I didn't see an option to do one or the other, the version that I rented when I rented it was in color, which wasn't fantastic. I would have preferred the black and white version, so a word to the wise there, but other than that, I really, really enjoyed this, and I would recommend it for people looking to kind of enjoy a classic Ray Harryhausen monster movie. This one was really, really fun. 20 Million Miles to Earth. It is available for rent. So instead of doing what we usually do at this point of the show, which is talk about new movies, it is late August, not to say that there aren't some good movies out there, but we just thought instead of doing that, we got a lot of feedback about our conversation on our last episode about Stranger Things. A lot more than we usually get. Usually we get a little bit, a little here. We got some, we got a lot of it and we got some passionate emails. So we thought instead of talking about new movies, maybe that wouldn't be so interesting at this time of the year. Let's instead dive back in just for a few minutes and read a few of the Stranger Things emails that we got. We got a lot of them. Uh, we're going we're, we're gonna to read them, and we'll, we'll, we'll discuss what people had to say. Some people, I think, agreed with us. Some people, eh, they did not agree with us so much, Allison. They, they weren't too happy with us in some cases. But we're going we're gonna to let them have their, their moment to uh, respond, to rebut. Let's start with this email right here from Chris in Pittsburgh, PA. Chris writes, as part of your conversation about Stranger Things, Matt raised the question as to whether it was possible for nostalgia to be frightening or for horror to be nostalgic. My two cents is that, yes, horror can be nostalgic, but I think it takes a particular kind of horror and a particular kind of nostalgia. For me, there are a handful of movies that fit into the horror genre that, while they can still be scary, fill me more with joy than with fear. Jaws is a great example, but Psycho, The Birds, and Poltergeist count as well, and there are others. These are movies that were much scarier when I was a child than they are now, and when I revisit them, it's with a combination of chills and pleasure. They're not overly gruesome, for one thing, and they're not mean-spirited. Uh, there's a lightness, a sense of humor that sets them apart and adds to their rewatchability. I consider them, and this is in quotes in Chris's email, nostalgic horror. Personally, I thought Stranger Things nailed the elements of nostalgic horror. It's scary at times, but it's almost never gruesome, and even though it's not as funny as something like Jaws, it has enough punchlines that it never feels relentless or depressing. Is it as scary as something like The Babadook or It Follows? No. But I don't think that's the point. Instead of being pure horror, it feels like a show that would have scared me as a kid, but now I can enjoy watching, still with the occasional jump or chill. And that was from Chris in Pittsburgh, PA. What do you think about that, Allison? It was my, my argument, or at least my kind of 
I, I don't know if it was an argument, but I was thinking aloud about it. This question of can horror be nostalgic? Can nostalgia be horrifying? Or is nostalgia so kind of inherently warm and inviting and makes you happy that it, it kind of is antithetical or butts up against the horror aspects? Yeah, I don't know. It's funny. I wouldn't have expected to think about it as in what films am I familiar with that are scary? You know, because I feel like for me, what we were talking about specifically is the idea of can an original work evoke feelings of nostalgia, reach for feelings of nostalgia while also reaching for scares? I mean, I think I think absolutely watching something like Jaws can create those feelings of nostalgia and scares, though. I think for me, knowing I I feel like I don't have a lot of scares coming from Jaws at this point. Yeah. I enjoy it, but like, yeah. I would say, I mean, maybe, but not really. I would say that the examples that Chris cites, and I think he makes a good point about them. Those examples, though, they're not trying to be nostalgic. We have nostalgic feelings right. about them because we saw them as kids. So it's not like they were trying to evoke necessarily you could argue in some cases maybe they were but i maybe poltergeist but that would be the one that i think is probably the closest but not even really that said if you wanted to argue that stranger things isn't so much going for jaws as it is the feeling of watching jaws when you were a kid if that's what it's trying to evoke then i might see your point if the idea is it's not so much trying to be one of these old movies it is trying to capture that feeling you felt as a kid, watching something that was maybe a little too scary for you or maybe a little too adult for you and you watched it anyway? Well, maybe. Maybe I could see that point. I think that's maybe where I could kind of agree with Chris about it. Yeah, and I stand by my point that I think It Follows is the best example for me of something that creates a sense of or evokes a sense of nostalgia in its approach and its kind of score and its trappings while also being incredibly scary. Yeah. All right. Here's an email from Ross Edwards. Ross writes, hello, I enjoyed the conversation about Netflix's Stranger Things. One influence on the show, though, is the flickering light queasiness of Twin Peaks. And I thought this would be an interesting counterexample to Matt's point about the incompatibility of horror and nostalgia. Lynch's movies often take place in similar small-town environments of milkshakes and diners and perfect cups of coffee. But for Lynch, suburban comfort hangs a thin veil over unsettling chaos just beneath the surface. In Lynch's work, nostalgia amplifies horror because he's interested in showing the instability of memory and sanity. Nostalgia is deformed into something hideous, all the more disorienting because of its vague familiarity, like a nightmare where everything's the same but different. I think Stranger Things could have capitalized on this feeling because of MK Ultra, a reference to a real and extremely sinister CIA program from the 1950s. The America of yesteryear is not without skeletons in closets, and some are so disturbing they might threaten to change our view about the past in general. I hope we would see more of that juxtaposition in the second season, and that is from Ross Edwards. I thought that was actually a really good, not only a good example, a counterexample to my like kind of question, but also an explanation why the way that Lynch uses and kind of twists nostalgia and this idea of this idealized past and kind of says there never was an idealized past. I think that's a really good example, actually. It is a really good example. And it's funny. I've never I tend to think of Lynch's Lynch as like puncturing a more abstract idea of Americana than necessarily a nostalgic one. But Mm. I think that the two are really, you can't really pick one or the other. Mm. It's absolutely like nostalgia is wrapped up in that. I am, I will say I've heard uh, multiple people have brought up MK ultra 
And I've been surprised by how much weight that's been given because I feel like MKUltra is used in pop culture kind of a lot mm. or like ripoffs of it are. Like the Bourne, pro- like Bourne right. movies are basically MKUltra. Right. American Ultra, new to streaming, is also basically <laughs> about right. all, you know. Um, yeah, I, I'm surprised by the, like, and I, uh, certainly um, I've seen it a lot on Twitter being brought up. Um, I had kind of always felt like uh, MKUltra is something that gets reached for not infrequently mm. in pop culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I think that I wanted more of that if it were going to kind of bring out be a real reference to a dark bit of american past that's fair let's read one more email this one not a fan of our take on the show um but this was by not the only email like this but i thought this was a this was a strong one so let's read that one it's from jake in brooklyn new york he says hey matt and allison i've been an svu listener for the past couple of years and an original recipe listener for about a decade i enjoy your dynamic and generally find your insights and criticism valid and well thought out Having said that, (laughs) after hearing your review of Stranger Things, it pains me to finally evoke a classic film spotting phrase for the first time. I hear what you're saying, but you are completely wrong. I don't know when you two started watching the show relative to the day it was released, so I don't want to accuse you of putting your guards up after the initial wave of positive hype that surrounded the show. But I found myself absolutely stunned by how off base your criticisms were. To me, Stranger Things did an outstanding job of maintaining the balance between direct homage and evoking the spirit of the films of its period. Even as I found myself pointing out references throughout the eight episodes, never once did it take me out of the story. And the reason for that is these characters stand strongly enough on their own that any accusation of the show feeling like a nostalgia machine at work feels a little cynical. My bafflement at your reaction to Stranger Things only increased after Allison recommended Attack the Block, which is a film I also love. What both of those pieces have in common that really makes them work beyond their references is the character development of their respective main groups of friends so that we care about them when they have to overcome adversity. I get that as critics, you are automatically prone to putting your shields up against nostalgia, but it felt like you were both going into the show with preconceived notions about it that you seemed unwilling to shake. Uh, and that is from Jake, who writes all the best in Brooklyn, New York. I have to say, and I think that there are a lot of there's a lot of valid defense here. But being accused of bad faith in a review uh, really makes me wince. We can only be as sincere, you know. I mean, it is our job as critics. Yes, and so. You have to you have to trust that we are trying to engage with things as openly as possible. I mean, I don't I don't think that I have my shields up with regard to this, and uh, you know, I, I reacted to it as openly as possible. Yeah, I, I I don't think so either. I mean, who knows? Maybe I do sometimes. I try. You know, it seems to me like this is the kind of thing that I was. It's right in my sweet spot. And I will say, we also got emails saying Matt hates every Netflix show oh, that we watch that uh and I, I admit that a lot of my uh, responses to a lot of the Netflix shows haven't lately haven't been to my taste now part of that is be- we haven't talked about the ones that I liked like for example I love the most recent season of Orange is the New Black we yeah, didn't review the most recent season and that was like my favorite season of the entire show and I would have if we had reviewed it I would have just gushed all over it and I like the most recent season of House of Cards as well which we also didn't talk about so you know I, but but I take that criticism as well I have been a little negative but again it's not that i'm setting out to dislike these shows trust me i want to like them when we review one of these shows i'm committing to watching 
10, 12, 15 hours of television, I'm not going into them going, man, this is going to be bad. I'm going, man, I hope I like this. Yeah. I just, I'm just being honest. Here's, I will say this, which is I think that you missed why one of the reasons I uh, – or to the writer, I think you missed one of the reasons that I like Attack the Block so much, which is that I think it works as – a kind of critique of the way that a lot of the kind of groups of childhood friends mm. are used in the sorts of films that become source material for stranger right. things, you know, that I think it kind of challenges that idea of the childhood innocence and all of that by creating a group of kids for whom innocence is not some kind of, uh, you know, idyllic, if sometimes dark place in life. And that for whom all of the absentee parenting that is, uh, a trope Part in, and parcel. Right. It suddenly, like, uh, you know, becomes uh, a lot less funny. Uh, I think that I wanted a bit more in Stranger Things of something different, mm. you know, of, of something that didn't feel like it was, it was just recasting or kind of uh, bringing back up a, a very a tried and true type of friend dynamic. It's interesting because I feel like in some ways the, the gift and curse for – uh, you know, not necessarily just a critic, but someone who has seen a lot of the stuff that this is referencing is it can tickle you in just the right way. Or you can also go, I have seen all of this before and it's not bringing a lot of new stuff to the table. And we did get another email, which I don't think we have time to read the whole thing of, but from a listener named Eric Hodder, who talked about how his young, his teenage sons watched the show and really in, uh, enjoyed it. Engaged in the storyline, found the characters to be fun and lively. As younger guys, they had no sense of nostalgia for the 80s, and the series absolutely worked for them. And that's fantastic. I would say on the flip side, they didn't necessarily get the references, and so it was sort of original and fresh to them in a way it couldn't feel to me. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder if in 20 years, if Eric's sons go back and watch it, having now seen all of the things it's referencing— would they go, oh, this was a – I mean that happens to me sometimes. I'll rewatch something that I loved as a kid from my youth and go, oh, wait a second. This is all ripped off from this movie that I hadn't seen when I saw it the first time, and it felt so original and clever to me. And actually it was kind of taken from something else, you know, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that the baggage that you bring to it can be a good thing or sometimes it can be a bad thing. Yeah. I – I wish I enjoyed it as much as the uh, yes. people who have written in. I'm glad people have, liked and it. I'm glad and let me tell it. you, we're in the minority. This show has really touched a kind of a nerve that in a way that a lot of Netflix shows, recent ones, have, have not. not. Yeah. It's definitely their most sort of successful in terms of building a buzz and getting people really into the world of the show. And as, certainly since Orange is the New Black in the early seasons. Yeah. And as I've said, I do think it is like the perfect internet age creation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I admire that they pulled that off. Yeah, I just uh, I did not respond to it as personally as a lot of other people. But did. if you liked it, that's fantastic. Yes. I'm sorry we could not join you. I hope in the future we can. All right, let's move on to Behind the Eight Ball, where we wrap up the show with some new releases on streaming, some listener recommendations, and we have a bunch of them this time. And we, of course, also pick one film blindly by number from each other's my lists on Netflix. Allison, who's going first this time? I'm going first. All right, well, why don't you start with three new releases on streaming? Okay, well, well, first up is one that uh, is related to our theme of stop motion. It is Shaun the Sheep, which is now streaming on Hulu and Amazon Prime. Ardman Studios uh, stop motion animated film from last year based on the TV show. You don't need to know the TV show. I didn't know the TV show. What you need to know is that there's a sheep. His name is Sean. He's very cute. 
It's dialogue free. It's very gentle. It's about uh, the sheep going into the city for the day and having all kinds of terrible hijinks. Amnesia is involved as well. Uh, it's, I think, maybe too gentle for, for some adults. I know some people got a little impatient with this, but I found it really lovable. And uh, I, I like a lot of Ardman's aesthetic. And this is, this is nothing new, but it, it, it's more of the same. That's, so that's Shaun the Sheep on Hulu and Amazon Prime. New to Amazon Prime is We Come As Friends, which is the new film from Hubert Sope, I guess it would be. He made the Oscar-nominated Darwin's Nightmare, and he has followed it up with this another film about the kind of legacy of colonialism in Africa and corruption. And this one is focused on South Sudan. Few people make as dark and like darkly grim and funny films about Africa and the the kind of international forces at work there that then so pay so pay and uh this one I, I you know I've been looking forward to catching up with because it's uh it's one I missed apparently he flies around Africa in a tiny light, ultralight plane that he put together himself so that's on Amazon Prime and finally new to Hulu and Amazon Prime is Mission Impossible Rogue Nation in a summer of mostly terrible or forgettable blockbuster sequels, it's nice to have a moment to look back on this one, which was evidence that a blockbuster sequel can actually be thoroughly and classically enjoyable. And this, you know, was another incomprehensible uh, plot about chasing MacGuffins and stealing things and the IMF. And Ethan Hunt uh, and also introduced the fabulous Rebecca Ferguson uh, in a role in which she demands her you know, very expensive shoes be taken off to do action scenes. I enjoyed this movie a lot. I think it is just a very good time uh, from director Christopher McQuarrie. That is Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. It is streaming on Hulu and Amazon Prime. All right. How about two listener recommendations? Okay. First up, we have one from Madeline in Norman, Oklahoma, who writes, I did a quick search of the website and didn't see this one mentioned, but sorry if I missed it. I'd like to recommend the 1966 rom-com caper, How to Steal a Million, starring Audrey Hepburn and Peter O'Toole. It's charming and silly. Paris looks great. Audrey Hepburn looks great. Peter O'Toole looks great. Mm. If you want some frothy fun and good chemistry, then check this one out and that is streaming on netflix now thank you madeline that's a great recommendation and we got a recommendation from uh emily in sweden who writes i would like to recommend the bbc tv movie stewart a life backwards that is available on hbo go and also hbo nordic it's like that French film, The Untouchables, but instead of being an offensive story about working class and upper class, it's a really well-written and interesting film about a middle-class man befriending a hopeless criminal. Oh, and Tom Hardy and Benedict Cumberbatch, both before becoming superstars, play the lead roles. Thanks for the great show. I have not heard of that, and mm. I am intrigued by <laughs> that combo of actors, certainly. Uh, thank you for that recommendation, Emily. Okay, and one film chosen by the way, list. You give me number 10. This is a film called I, Anna. Is a thriller I had never heard of. Just I've added never heard of it either. Netflix, and I, I added it on a whim. Here is the description. In this modern noir thriller set in London, a police detective pursues a woman he encountered at a crime scene following her to a speed dating event. The reason I added it is that it stars Gabriel Byrne and Charlotte Rampling. And that combo intrigued me, and it popped up, 
and I added it. And now it is number 10 on my my list. Hmm. How about that? Yes. All right, Matt, are you ready? Let's do it. Give me three new releases. Okay. First up, new to Amazon Prime, one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies and favorite movies of the century so far, No Country for Old Men. The Coen Brothers' brutal and brilliant adaptation of the Cormac McCarthy novel. Josh Brolin stars as Llewellyn Moss, a hunter who stumbles on a drug deal gone wrong. He tries to steal the cash he finds. And then Javier Bardem in the performance of a lifetime as Anton Chigurh. Basically, the personification of evil is the guy who is sent to retrieve it. If you haven't seen this one, come on. You should see that let's, one. Let's go. Let's, let's make with the watching of the No Country for Old Men. That's on Amazon Prime. Next up, another dark modern crime film, although I guess it's a little bit less modern now since it came out over 15 years ago, which makes me really want to cry. That is The Limey from director Steven Soderbergh, which is now on Hulu. And it's about an aging British gangster who arrives in Los Angeles looking to a... I, maybe I shouldn't spoil what it's about. It's just really good. <laughs> Steven Soderbergh, he, uh, he, he burst onto the scene about a decade before the limey with Sex, Lies, and Videotape. But then his immediate career after that kind of floundered. Some of the movies are interesting, but he didn't really, it didn't really come together for him until about 10 years later when he had the one-two punch of Out of Sight, which is also great if you haven't seen it, and, and The Limey, which really kind of put his career on the path that it's been on since then, at least until he retired-ish, where he mixes bold, unusual filmmaking and editing with very interesting genres and subjects, and The Limey is one of his best. That is The Limey. It is available on Hulu. And finally... The superb and underseen movie Rabbit Hole, which is now available on 2V TV. This is a film by John Cameron Mitchell, the director of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Uh, it's got Nicole Kidman, Aaron Eckhart. They star as a couple grappling with the death of their child. There's no gangsters in this one like the limey. Instead, it's – again, I don't want to know how much I want to spoil, but it all involves a very young Miles Teller in the role that made him a star, at least in my eyes. And Miles Teller has – Gone on to do some great things, although he seems to be kind of a controversial figure to some people. It also feels like he's stalled out a little bit maybe, in, a, yeah. in a certain type of swaggery role. Perhaps. And, and he also seems a little, maybe a little arrogant at times, and that can put people off. I would encourage people who aren't sold on him, who haven't seen this movie, check this one out and his performance in it. I think it might make you a believer. So that is Rabbit Hole. It is available now on 2BTV. All right. How about two listener recommendations? Our first one comes from Neva Winkle. Neva writes, after hearing it was on Matt's My List, I wanted to recommend the Netflix show Cooked. It was also recommended to me after watching Chef's Table, and I really enjoyed it. Each of the four episodes explore one of the main elements related to cooking. Fire, when humans first learned to cook with fire. Water, when we created pots strong enough to boil water in air, the importance of bread to modern civilization, and earth, which is all about fermentation. It sounds dry and scientific, but I was amazed at how entertaining, fascinating, and inspiring this show was. Thanks. And that's from Neva, and uh, the show, again, is called Cook. That was, I think... Maybe that was a random my list pick on the last episode, which I still haven't watched, but I'm glad to hear it's good. I actually, maybe I will check it out tonight when I get home. So thank you, Neva. We've also got a recommendation here from Brian Whitman. Brian writes, hi, Matt and Allison. I'm writing to recommend the four movies in the Lethal Weapon series, which are pretty new to availability on Netflix. I'm only three weeks. Rewatching the first two so far, but it is already amazing to see the transition from the grittiness of the first one to the more action comedy elements of the second. That transition away from series continues as the series adds more and more characters by the fourth one, having five leads essentially, with Rene Russo and Chris Rock being added in the third and fourth films. 
Uh, these are some really fun movies to watch. I think the second one is particularly confident with some strong performances and classic lines. What I think might be interesting about watching them all now on Netflix is that it might get people excited about a new TV show that is coming with the same characters. Had this been a streaming TV show, they all would have been made at one time and would have been stuck with a somewhat dour tone from the first film. It's interesting to see how stories and characters can change in both good and bad ways over time. Love the show. Keep up the good work from Brian Whitman. And I have not rewatched Lethal Weapons 2 through 4, but I did rewatch number one recently because, and I'll plug my own work here because why not? Uh, When the Nice Guys came out earlier this summer from Shane Black, who wrote uh, the original Lethal Weapon, and some of the second, although the second one was sort of rewritten, his script was rewritten. Um, I rewatched it to talk to him. I did this whole interview about his entire career. We rewatched scenes from all of his movies, and he kind of commented over them, and then I asked him questions. It's a really cool piece you can find on Screen Crush. And so I rewatched the first Lethal Weapon for that, and holds up pretty well. And it is a, it's less cartoonish than the series obviously would get, and Mel Gibson is kind of legitimately seems kind of unhinged and crazy in that first movie in a way that they kind of softened as they went along. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I do like the second one, too. I'm not sure I can I can go to bat for the third and fourth, but I'd be interested in to rewatch them myself. So thanks for that recommendation, Brian. OK, and one from your my list. You gave me number 10. And right now on my list, number 10 is. Western, which is the latest film, I believe, from the Ross Brothers. Have they put out a new they one They have yet? a new one. They have the one that's a concert film, the David okay. Byrne concert film. Oh, that's film. right. But this is one of their most recent films. They're great documentarians. I've seen all of their previous movies and like them, but I haven't caught up with Western yet. The plot description on Netflix says, For two decades, two towns on opposite sides of the Texas-Mexico border have coexisted quietly, but encroaching drug-related violence threatens the peace. And actually... I can't imagine this being any less timely or more interesting now, given all the stuff going on in our national politics, the presidential election. The story of these two towns on either side of the Texas-Mexico border sounds even more interesting to watch now. So I've been looking forward to watching this. I just haven't had the time yet. I'm a big fan of the Ross Brothers, and I will definitely see this one. This one won't just sit on the my list forever. This one's going to be watched and probably pretty soon. That is Western. All right, let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. An interesting batch. We're calling this kind of 2016 catch-up. You've seen one of the three? I have. I have only, I am dying I seen, to talk about it. Okay, and I haven't seen any of the three. So all three of them would be new to me, and I'd be happy to watch any of them and kind of catch up with them as we're getting our way towards the end of the year. It's going to be uh, list-making time soon enough, Allison. We've got to see these movies. You have the first one. What is it? It is the film that on on Films Budding Maine I brought up as, I think, one of my favorite films of the first half of the year. You did. I heard yes. you talk about it. It is Wiener. It is available for rent. It is the documentary about Anthony Wiener as he tries to recover from his first sexting scandal and to run for mayor of New York City in 2013. And one of the two directors of this movie, Josh Kriegman, was Anthony Weiner's chief of staff for a few years when he was in Congress and is part of the reason that they get just incredible, ill-advised access to the whole painful process of both, I mean, the kind of Anthony Weiner's perhaps shot at redemption and then his second sexting scandal and everything that follows after that. It is a really incredible film in part, well, I mean, in large part because of the access, but also because of 
what a character, like the particular character Anthony Weiner is. Um, so I think I would love to see it again. And I think there is a lot to talk about there. And, um, and I think we could probably talk about political documentaries. Oh, yeah, that would be a great I topic. I think there's a lot of really good ones in there. And really, people are, you know, why would it's not like people are talking about politics right now. People aren't <laughs> fed up with politics and want to escape from it by listening to a, a film podcast for a few minutes and kind of put the horrors of the world on hold. So I think it's a perfect idea. <laughs> good call. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen that movie. You know, it came out right in the throes of... of Young baby dumb. So it was one that I was I missed, and I I've been really I've been waiting. I've actually looked a few times to see if it was available for rent, as my schedule has loosened up just a little bit, and I have more time to watch stuff. And it wasn't available yet, so I'm so excited that I'll be able to watch it with or without you talking about it. I will be watching that <laughs> one very soon. So cool. All right, our second option, another movie that I missed, and I'm looking forward to catching up with and talking about maybe on the show. It's Hello, My Name is Doris. It's also available for rent. It's the new film from director Michael Showalter. The plot description is with help from her best friend, Tyne Daly's granddaughter, a smitten woman played by Sally Field concocts schemes to get the attention of a younger co-worker played by Max Greenfield in her office. The film also stars Peter Gallagher, Stephen Root, and Tasha Leone, and Kumail Nanjiani. And uh, Michael Showalter, to me, is although I, I love, love Sally Field, too, the real appeal here is Michael Showalter. He's a filmmaker I really like. Uh, he's, you know, Wet Hot American Summer, The State, and The Ten, and on and on and on. Even when I don't love his movies, I always find they're interesting. I think he has a great comedic perspective. And so this is another one that sort of with or without the show, I will be watching it because I am a Michael Showalter fan. And uh, it's an interesting premise for him to kind of take on, and I'm interested to see what he does with that. So that's option number two, another really strong one. Hello, my name is Doris. That is available for rent. Option number three is the one I think is the the biggest question mark. Mm. It is Last Days in the Desert, also available for rent. This is the film written directed by Rodrigo Garcia, who did Nine Lives. Uh, he directed or he created In Treatment. And uh, it stars Ewan McGregor as both Jesus and the devil. Uh, Jesus as he is out in the desert uh, for 40 days of fasting and, you know, is tempted and, uh, you know, has his kind of great test. And the cast also includes Ty Sheridan, Kieran Hines, and Eilat Zurer. It's a film that I think has gotten some good critical word, but didn't, it kind of flew under the radar when it came out in theaters. It didn't get a lot of attention. But, I, you know, I think it might be a good time to also maybe do an Ewan McGregor-themed oh, podcast, especially with Trainspotting 2 on the yes, horizon. Yes, did you see that trailer? I did see wow. that the little teaser. I know. The terrible ravages of time. <laughs> especially uh, for heroin junkies. Come on. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, I think he's, he's had an interesting career of ups and downs, and I think that might be a good, this might be a good time for that. When, when else? When someone's playing Jesus. Um, so that is Last Days in the Desert, and that is your third option. These are all available for rent. Okay, which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? It's up to you. Send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, August 22nd at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. 
And then you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which should be out around Tuesday, August 30th. FilmspottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all of the movies and TV shows we discuss on the episodes. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we will be back with more recommendations and the review that you pick. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can always follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice poll and where we share more streaming suggestions from you and from me. Uh, so definitely follow that if you want to be kept up to date with all the releases that I personally find interesting and only me. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>